This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Stephen J. Harper is a professor of law at Northwestern University. We've had him on this program three times previously to discuss, first, the epic mismanagement of the COVID pandemic, then the peculiar turns of recent national politics. Central to both discussions has been the figure of Donald J. Trump. Mr. Harper is well qualified to analyze Trump. He had previously put together a lengthy examination of the entire saga of Russia versus the Donald. This worthy document can be found at the websites of both Dan Rather and Bill Moyers. His work on the COVID epidemic and the bizarre way it was handled in the U.S. led to a series of timelines, which we hope will play a role in future legal accountings of Trump's actions. They, too, can be found on BillMoyers.com and are highly recommended by us. That Moyers site also contains an insightful analysis of the astonishing developments that characterized the final days of the Trump administration. At the head of the class in that category would be Stephen Harper's most recent posting, which summarizes where we are as impeachment begins. Relevant points include Trump's long-anticipated refusal to acknowledge any defeat in favor of absurdist claims of election fraud. Trump, of course, then led a campaign to change the results of the election by legal attacks. When that failed, he attempted to persuade officials in Georgia to simply find him enough votes to alter the outcome. Failing this, Trump attempted to have his vice president invalidate the electoral vote count. Facing the refusal of Mike Pence to attempt an obviously unconstitutional and legally meaningless action, Trump played his final hand on January 6th and incited an insurrection to stop the certification of the election and simply remain in power. The definition of a putsch is a secretly planned, suddenly executed attempt to overthrow a government. On January 6th, a putsch took place in Washington. In the wake of its failure, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Trump a second time. And so it is that this week the mandated trial in the U.S. Senate goes forward. As a law professor with deep knowledge of the defendant in the case, Stephen Harper is extremely qualified to render opinions on where this is likely to go. And believe you me, we seek those opinions. To obtain them, let's start by saying welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thank you, Doug. I'm I'm always happy to be here. Uh, One thing I would note for you... Uh, I'm actually an adjunct professor at Northwestern, and the reason for that is because my my main uh, job as a lawyer for 30 years was actually trying cases. What I do at Northwestern is is teach a, a trial practice courses and uh, courses in ethics and professional responsibility. So in that sense, I feel, I guess, as if I have a little more to offer uh, on the perspective of actually trying a case like this, maybe more than a just a, p- a pure scholar uh, approaching the subject might. Sure. What can I do for you today? I want to start by <laughs> directing listeners. By the way, I should say, as we, as we speak, I'm, the, the, the first day of the Senate trial is, is currently underway, and it's, uh, so your timing is, is perfect in that respect. Yeah, yeah, for listeners, I should note that I'm here trying to like work out the question I'm going to ask you. In the meanwhile, not being watched by me is MSNBC and CNN covering what's actually going on. So I'm, I'm coming in a little bit behind here, but uh, we'll catch up. That's okay. Yep. It's a very succinct summary you're putting forward of the of these these events that have taken place. Um, I re- I read it and I watched some of the and I read most of the attached videos, and and I noted first of all CNN must have been reading looking at your at your site because they were pretty much going down the script of what you had on their broadcast last night, and and apparently um, 
Well, what, what really strikes a person, I think, is how incriminating the huge volumes of video uh, shot that day are, which, which some, many of which you posted. And I guess here in, in the Senate chambers, they decided that would be a good thing to start with. Yeah, I have to say, just from a, from a standpoint of trial presentation, the, the House managers did a, what I thought was a superb job um, in their opening presentation. Um, I've, I've been watching the Trump lawyer, Bruce Castor, speak now for about half an hour. I don't know if it'll get better by the time he finishes. Um, but at least to this point, I would guess that there's a, a client in Palm Beach in Mar-a-Lago who it can't be particularly happy with what he's seeing. It, it's really stunning. But the videos tell the story. And, and in a case like this, the, there are lots of things that are important in terms of context. One of the important points of context, of course, is the six months of, of sort of revving up his base that Trump did in order to get them to a point where on January 6th all he had to do was, you know, you know, pick your favorite an- analogy, uh, light the light the match or pull the trigger. The video that the that the House managers put together is a composite of the videos that I had put together as as my proposed uh, trial presentation if I were trying this case. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's it is um, it's must see TV and it's difficult to watch it in the sense that. I still have a hard time believing that this happened in America. Right. And I have an even more difficult time accepting the notion that there will be enough Senate Republicans to just say, oh, well, give them a pass. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Yep. First first of all, the thing they're trying to establish right now is, is there a right to even have this trial? And it it looks like that's going to, I mean, Castor's not done talking. More Trump guys, as we speak, are going to, I guess, probably weigh in on the matter. But it seems pretty clear that the vote's going to go, yes, we have the right to do this. Right. Yeah, he has, there's Bruce Castor and then the the other fellow whose name escapes me at the moment are the two lawyers he had. You may recall that, uh, you know, less than a week ago, uh, all of the other lawyers uh, that Trump had had to that point uh, walked away from him. Uh, no one is 100% sure why, but the, the reporting is that Trump wanted his lawyers to continue to argue basically the false conspiracy claims that Trump has been trying to float out, you know, to sell uh, and has apparently successfully sold to millions of his followers. Yes. He finally hit lawyers who said, uh, no, you know what, I, I, I'm just not going to do that. I, I, I can't do that. Uh, after four years of having lawyers at his disposal who, frankly, refused to draw that kind of line, right. uh, much, to, much to my chagrin, frankly, I wrote extensively and, and repeatedly about that, the problem of lawyers that had really lost their way. But these guys are arguing now, they're really down to the, uh, the, the constitutional arguments, which are, well, I, I think they're frivolous. Uh, frankly, yeah. and so do the majority of, of legal scholars. They boil down to a couple of really simple propositions. One is, you can't try a president because he's a former president, uh, which is nonsense. The the text and the and the House managers did a very good job on this, but the text, history, precedent, and everything else of the Constitution thoroughly rebuts that notion. Plus, they ignore the fundamental point that he's being impeached for what he did while he was president. Yes, And if you accept that notion, then you create what the House managers correctly call the January exception, which means that the president can be held to his oath of office for year one, year two, year three, and most of year four. But once you get to January, after he has lost an election, he can do everything in his power to try to hang on to power. And there's not anything that anyone can do about it, because by the time you get to trying him in the Senate, he won't be in office anymore, uh, which, is a, which is a crazy proposition. And then there are other, the other ma- arguments they, they make, basically, is that, uh, well, there's a First Amendment, you know, uh, Trump has a, as a, as president, he had the First Amendment right to, 
to say what he said, and and that is uh, e- equally nonsense for a number of different reasons. But the uh, the, the most pithy of which is to no president has a right to incite an insurrection against uh, a coordinate branch of government, uh, sure. namely the legislature, in an effort to stay in power. It seems self-evident, right? You'd think. Well, uh, meanwhile, the rioters are being put on trial. The defense that they're throwing up is that, well, they were doing what the president asked them to do. So I guess we have to ask the question pretty on the, on the early side, are, are those criminal cases likely to bleed over into these impeachment arguments? Because they're saying, look, Trump is just exercising free speech. He didn't really mm-hmm. incite a riot. And the rioters are saying, oh, yes, he did. Right. And we did it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And we went out and did it. They're going to bleed back and forth into each other. And I think that's going to happen for, for a long time to come. And the thing that you haven't yet seen in the private criminal cases that are being brought is what I would call the the climb up the food chain. Where is all this coming from? Who who are the real organizers of the the rally? To what extent does this actually go back into Trump's White House in terms of the organization, in terms of all of the different aspects that led to the January 6th insurrection? I think that's going to be a very interesting story, and we already know enough to make things look, let's see, shall we say suspect, given the number of former Trump campaign uh, workers and pretty high up in his in his campaign staff and even in the White House, who were, guess what, listed as organizers on the rally permit. You know, so I think this is going to lead in a lot of very ugly directions for, yeah. for Trump. I'm a little unclear at how much evidence they're going to present or, or, and whether Trump will testify. I don't know, I don't know if you have a, a, a good sense of that or, or how long the proceedings are likely to last. What do you think? I don't think Trump will testify. There was an effort of uh, an invitation, I should say, from the House managers to uh, you would you know come and testify, which he his lawyers immediately declined. The risk, of course, for for Trump that his lawyers have seen going all the way back to when Mueller wanted to to depose uh, take take Trump's deposition um, is once you get the guy under oath, he <laughs> creates a whole new set of legal exposures for himself because he's he's just not capable of telling the truth consistently right. when it runs anywhere afoul of what he wants any, everyone to believe. Uh, how long will the trial take? You know, they've mapped out a schedule to this point that would take it into probably early next week. And the, the big question is, will, will the House managers seek to call witnesses? I sincerely hope they do. I think they can call witnesses and put witnesses on on the stand, bring them in and have them testify without necessarily prolonging the trial all that long, because you know, the witnesses you would call would be people like the, the U.S. Capitol officer who was getting, you know, crushed in the in the door as right. the rioters were hitting. It would be very short, pithy, uh, pointed witnesses that really bring home the feeling of the you are there. You know, there was that old TV series, you know, you are there, and they'd reenact historical events. And they'd play it as if it were a contemporary newscast. Well, all of America was there for this, and Every single person in the Senate chamber was actually physically present and a witness and, right. and to some degree a victim of what happened that day. Right. So I really hope they, they do call witnesses. And to the extent that the Trump's lawyers want to call witnesses, my, my attitude would be, fine. I can't wait to see them. Give me an hour's notice so I can have a cross-examination ready, because I think it'll be pretty interesting. Because I don't know what a live witness for Trump could possibly say. You know, they took an interesting position the, in the brief that the Trump's lawyers filed. They took this position buried in a footnote that said, you know, the notion that Trump thought that 
what was happening was uh, that he was delighted by it, which was a, a, a widespread reporting reflected that. The reason it took two or two hours or more to get focused on the need to mobilize the National Guard is because, pre- reportedly anyway, uh, Trump refused to do it. Um, and then it goes on to say in this footnote, you know, he was horrified just like everyone else was, and there's no proof, and there never will be any proof that he was delighted or promoted this or anything else. Well, it's, that's baloney on a number of levels. Number one, we know he promoted it from his public statements. His very last tweet at 6.01 was, remember this day, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens when, you know, elections get essentially get stolen from you. But more importantly, that, that footnote to me is an invitation to say, okay, fine, you say this is true, Put on a witness. Let's let's yeah. have somebody testify to that because we know from Senator Ben Sass, for example, who told uh, Hugh Hewitt, who was who's been a an ardent Trump defender all the way to the end, that he he was in touch with the aides at the White House who said that Trump was delighted and he didn't understand why his aides weren't delighted with all the rioting that was happening and the response that was happening. Uh, at the Capitol as it was happening. So, you know, I'd call Ben Sass. I, there are a lot of interesting witnesses. I, I would call Mitch McConnell, who, yeah. who finally on the Senate floor said uh, the mob was fed lies. You know, they were provoked by the president and other powerful people. Okay, we'll put him on the, just put Mitch on the stand and just yeah. ask him if what yeah, he said was true. Floor. This is the key, I think, that's the way to think about this. The audience is, of course, it's the Senate, but the more important audience, I think, are the 75 million people who voted for Trump. Because what you're ultimately trying to do is penetrate that cult. Yes. I have to believe that a number of that 75 million people who observed what happened on January 6th uh, would, have, would not have voted for him on November 3rd after the events that they saw on January 6th. So it's some number, it's, we already know it's some number less than 75 million but those, those are the people that would be my target audience, my main target audience, which is why I was so pleased, frankly, that the House managers opened with a 20 or 30 minutes of, of really must-see uh, TV in the, in the form of, here's what happened. And you were there, and you, no, you, your eyes weren't deceiving you. This is, this is what happened. It was very, very well done, but it was very, very pointed, very clear, and, and um, you, you could not turn away. Yeah, I was shocked to realize that it's it's highly probable that lots of people just never got around to seeing that footage. I, I hope that on the second go around with, you know, more publicity here in this impeachment trial, they'll finally get around to, to checking it out because it's quite compelling. Absolutely right. And and the way they have uh, sort of combined the different pieces, you know, there was a there was a piece that Just Security did that showed the the crowd the reaction as Trump was speaking, yes. which you know it screams incitement to you. Yeah, that's, that's your another... first video on, on your on your on your page. Right. That's, that's really right. something. Yep. Then there's the Washington Post, 41 minutes that shows how they're marching through the Capitol buildings, and and Eugene Goodman, the Capitol police officer, is diverting them away from Pence and the senators. You know, literally a minute after Pence had just escaped along that same corridor, and then you have the the video of the mob attacking the officer, and then you have, and, and even guys with body cams. And, and all of that, they've managed to merge all that together in a very good way that makes for a, a very powerful, very powerful story. And, and I, you're, I agree with you. I, I hope a lot of people get a chance to see it. They ought to, you'd like to see it, at least half of it or something, uh, on, the, on, the te- on the news, every news channel. This is something that Americans really need to see. I was holding up a copy I have here of your summary of what, what's happening. And there's one thing that, that's near the end of it that just sort of really jumps out at me that, that I don't think has gotten much attention anywhere. At 7 o'clock, 
uh, Rudy Giuliani was trying to reach some of the senators to, to urge them on. And uh, you, you've got a quote from what he said to them, like Senator Tuberville, he's trying to reach Tuberville, and I guess he reaches another senator, Senator Lee, whatever. Or he leaves a message saying, or should I say Coach Tuberville? This is Rudy Giuliani, the president's right. lawyer. I'm calling because right. I want to discuss how we're going to do this. And at the end, here's the sentence that just blows me away. I know they're reconvening at 8 tonight, but the only strategy we can follow is to object to numerous states and raise issues so that we can get ourselves into tomorrow, ideally until the end of tomorrow. We have to speculate what was Giuliani and presumably Trump hoping would happen the next day if, it could, if, it, if the chaos could continue along uh, those lines for one more day. Well, you're right. It, it is speculation, but you have to assume that at that point they're just playing a, a day-to-day game. So that if the goal is, here, here's what I would, here's what I would speculate. I would speculate that the goal from November sixth on has always been to create sufficient doubt that there was a cloud over the election that cast very serious questions about its legitimacy. And so, you know, and we all know what the different things that Trump did to try to do that. He was calling election officials. He was calling uh, governors. He was, he was calling everybody in swing states, trying to get them just, you know, introduce a cloud, create a cloud, create uncertainty, create doubt. And I think the notion was if they could disrupt the process, and indeed that was what, if you think about what Cruz and Hawley, Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz, and Senator Josh Hawley were asking for when they were objecting on January 6th, they were act- asking that there be a delay during it, and during that 10-day time period, uh, states go back and sort of check and audit and all that sort of stuff. So it was all about creating more doubt about the legitimacy of the election itself in a way that would then put Trump in a, in a position to say, well, clearly there's got to be a great big do-over here. Um, and at a minimum, we're going to have to rerun the election in swing state. And, uh, and I, I just think it was all, you know, with Trump, it's always about get me to the next day. Yeah. And, and in this case, it was get me to a point where I can create sufficient doubt about this, that I'll, there'll be some basis for, for me to do something else. And I'll figure out what the something else is tomorrow. But the game always is I got to stay in power because once I'm not in power anymore, I got legal exposures all over creation on a whole host of issues ranging from, you know, civil suits of from women who claim they defamed them to financial problems to hundreds of millions of dollars that he owes bank, uh, Deutsche Bank, to on and on and on and on and on. To me, the interesting thing about the, the Giuliani call at seven um, is that he reached Senator Lee by mistake. So he called Senator Lee of Utah intending to reach Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama. What, to me, what's What's most interesting, and this is the part that I think has been kind of underappreciated, Giuliani used the same wrong number that Trump had used at 2 o'clock that afternoon as the riot is underway. Same wrong number, thinking he's reaching Tuberville, and he reaches Lee. Five hours later, things are, you know, that was in the middle of the riot. Right. And at 2 o'clock, Trump is saying, you know, we need some time. You know, we don't know. We don't know for sure what he said, but but it's clear that the goal is to continue to object and and create some time. So somehow Giuliani is using the same wrong number. Yes, reaches the same wrong guy. He, he, he thinks he's so charming. He leaves his voicemail. You know, maybe I should call you coach. You know, because you know everybody loves America's mayor. You know, he's just such a charmer. That's the significant piece. They they both use the same phone number. Yeah, and reach the thinking they heard 
reaching the same guy, and they both reached the wrong. They both reached the wrong guy. Not a coincidence. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Since we're talking about the issue of what you know, how there may have been a question of buying some time in this whole thing, I have to to bring up the the fact that in one of your compilation videos. It shows the National Guard troops outside of the building. I think CNN showed the same sequence. The sequencing in this implies that the National Guard's there before they resumed the electoral certification at 8 o'clock. But it seems clear if you look at it that it's, it's, it's the middle of the night and everybody's gone. There's nobody left in the steps when the National Guard's there. And it seems clear the building was actually cleared by then through the action of Special Weapons and Tactics Divisions of the FBI, Secret Service, and municipal police. So the the great delay that uh, that appears to be present in in the arrival of the National Guard, I think I think therein hangs a tail. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it, and and that comes through that comes through loudly and clearly, uh, even from the Department of Defense memo that was the first effort to sort of explain away um, any criticism that might come to the Department of Defense. Um, the National Guard didn't show up until. Way later, the first of the National Guard uh, uh, people, uh, other than other than a handful that had been uh, assigned basically to monitor uh, metro stations and not protect the Capitol, um, they didn't show up until you know hours later. In fact, I think that was it Maryland and Virginia, which were the two states that that came uh, with their National Guard, weren't even there until. One of them wasn't even there until the next morning. Right. Um, I think so one was at it, midnight. One's like the next morning. That's right. So the only National Guard that came was ultimately not authorized, I think, until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it, and it took time to, to mobilize them. So that the fact that it, it took the Department of Defense, because what happened was earlier on, the acting Trump's acting Secretary of Defense, uh, Christopher Miller, had issued this memo saying, look, uh, nothing happens with the D.C. National Guard without my personal authorization right um wasn't even wasn't even giving them you know essential protective equipment and even at that it was a very small and limited staff um that that you know sort of this uh, swat team type strike force that they were that they were going to have kind of ready uh nearby and it took literally hours time that the dc mayor and the capitol police were pleading with uh, the army secretary um ryan mccarthy and and uh and and miller to authorize the D.C. National Guard um, before Miller got around finally to authorizing it. And it, what's unusual, of course, and the reason that happened is because if D.C. were a state, the governor could have authorized it. But because, the, because D.C. Is, is not a state, it has, to, it has to be a federal government that authorizes the deployment of the National Guard. The mayor couldn't do it on her own. The Capitol Police couldn't do it on its own. But there's a story there. Yep. Yeah. There's, it'll come out. I don't know exactly what it'll turn out to be. Maybe it's a story that turns out to be benign. Maybe it's innocuous. Maybe they were, they were so concerned about the uh, optics of what had happened in June with all the military brought out uh, for, that, uh, for that protest uh, and the criticism that that generated that maybe they just were, you know, playing this one safer in the other direction. But I have to tell you, if, if you think about your, think about what would have happened on January 6th to that mob if instead of Trump supporters it had been a, a bunch of multi-ethnic, multi-racial audience carrying Black Lives Matters, uh, you know, posters or, or something else. They'd have been, I think they'd have been mowed down with machine guns. Could be.
I want to address another point that's seldom remarked upon. In fact, I don't think anybody's remarked upon it. But in, in these videos, again, the ones that you presented and others have, have, have posted, it, it shows that when the congressional staffers were being evacuated, they passed very close to the, to the rioters. They really had this thin blue line of police between them and the insurrectionists. Apparently, some of those staffers had with them the actual electoral ballots. And I want to raise the question of, what if those had been seized by the insurrectionists? They would have not have been able to, Pence could not have regaveled the proceedings back to order at 8 o'clock if the ballots were missing. That's right. I, I think that's exactly correct. Were there copies of the electoral ballot? I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about the logistics of how that process works, but that would have been the ultimate disruption, right? Uh, the original, assuming the original copies of the electoral, electoral votes were the ones that would be required for certification. I mean, that would have really thrown everything into into haywire. So credit the quick-thinking staffers who, who grabbed those and, and secured them and saved them. Because, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's some. Maybe there was some simple backup and it wouldn't have been a big deal. But I don't know. You couldn't assume that. At the time that happened, there were a number of people that commented, well, good, good quick-thinking on their part. Um, so there must have been, it must have been that it would have been significant. Some of that mob, they wouldn't even have known what they'd had, I think, if they'd come sure. across them. Well, I won't ask you to speculate on it, but we, we did, you and I actually did discuss uh, back in November the fact that there had been all these changes at the Department of Defense and that Trump had put his people in. And, uh, you know, I, I just speculate that that was not an accident when it came to this, the whole delay of the National Guard thing. Well, especially if you look at the people that he was trying to put uh, in those spots. Chris Chris Miller, I don't know much about him. He's a little bit of an enigma other than I know from his background that he was a, a retired uh, army officer and then a lobbyist and then got a job working in the Trump White House. And then he goes from the Trump White House over to the Department of Defense and lo and behold, you know, the, the day after the, all of the major networks call the, the, the election in favor of Biden, uh, Chris Miller becomes acting Secretary of Defense. Um, but he wasn't the only change, as you correctly point out, and I, it's covered in the in, in the timeline. Uh, there were there were several others that that are there were fierce fierce Trump loyalists um, who also were moved over to really key positions at about the same time. As you said before, there are no coincidences, yeah. or, or maybe they are, but this is certainly a stunning stunning collection of them. You know, the other thing I wonder too, and we, we may never know the answer to this is whether some of this was afoot in fairly detailed ways heading into late November and early December when William Barr finally said publicly for the first time there just isn't enough of the type of widespread fraud that would reverse the outcome of the election. And then shortly after that, of course, he announced that he was going to be leaving. And I just have to wonder if maybe even Trump's ultimate wingman or who had been his ultimate wingman for two years, William Barr, had finally reached the point where, he, you know, Trump was talking about things that even he couldn't allow himself to be associated with. Well, like I say, we may never know the answer to that question. Only, only Bill Barr knows it for sure. But if you look at the, the sequence of events as they were unfolding, and I think we're going to find out more and more. You know, we're going to find more about White House meetings that happened. There already is reporting about White House meetings that happened in the middle of December hmm. that may have involved Trump and and people like Michael Flynn, the My Pillow guy. There's a lot of weird, weird stuff happening, and eventually it will all come out, I hope, I think. That's what I would do, frankly. If, if, regardless of how the impeachment process goes, it would be very wise for 
Pelosi and Schumer to create a joint commission similar to the 9-11 commission that simply got to the bottom of everything. And, and it, it could take a year. And it doesn't need to occupy every news cycle. But we really need to know as a country what happened here. Put the conspiracy theories to bed on either side of it. Sure. So if, if, if there's a conspiracy, oh, yeah, well, Trump had this plot. And if it turns out, no, well, it really wasn't. It was just kind of haphazard and kind of typically kind of Trump knee-jerk kind of stuff. Okay, fine. Well, then let's know that. But if it was something more sinister than that, well, let, let's, let's, just, let's learn all that, too. Let's figure that out, because otherwise we're never going to really know the truth. On, on Bill Moore's website, uh, there's a good clip where Bill sits down with you and Heather Cox Richardson sometime in late December to ponder what might happen in Trump's final days. And I think the three of you were all worried that something might happen like what actually happened on, on January 6th. Moyers raises the question at some point, and I think you do too, about legal prosecutions that could go forward. Obviously, we're talking about this is even before the insurrection, all sorts of issues, uh, acts committed as president he could be held accountable for. It is somewhat moot that he is out of office, so the impeachment proceeding doesn't have value there. There's a talk about a vote that bar him from future federal office. What about options that are further recourse that will be in, in the courts that would really uh, be meaningful at this point? Yeah, uh, a number of different things. I think he's got civil and criminal exposure across a wide range of issues. Um, going Even without the insurrection stuff, he had you know, the New York Attorney General looking closely at stuff at Trump, found Trump uh, organization dealings. He has Cy Vance, state's attorney in Manhattan, looking at, a, again, a broad range of financial issues that could lead to criminal uh, exposure. He's got, uh, as I mentioned, these uh, lawsuits, private lawsuits that could produce uh, big money exposure sure. relating to uh, that stuff. On the ins- insurrection, though, I think he's created a whole new list of possibilities. And think about O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson was acquitted, right, on the criminal charge. Right. Um, Trump still could face criminal charges for sedition. There's got to be laws against calling up election officials and saying, hey, would you do me a favor here? And I think it was yesterday or maybe it was this morning, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Georgia's looking into that very set of issues with respect to his calls to Raffensperger and, and election officials in Georgia. In addition to that, I think he's got a, a, a sort of a next level down. And, of course, to prove criminal, you know, a criminal charge, you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And right. O.J. Simpson walked on that basis. But O.J. Simpson lost on the civil claim that followed. That is a civil claim where the standard of proof was simply preponderance of the evidence. Yes. And I think Trump faces a number of potential civil claims from people who were injured or in some cases killed during the course of the insurrection. I think he's got a very, very long trail of litigation that's going to follow him for a very long time. Here's one I should throw out right now. What do you think the odds are that the president, among all these areas of legal jeopardy, what are the odds he might actually receive a prison sentence? Boy, that's an interesting question, because it depends so much on what prosecutors decide to pursue. And that and that could yield to political considerations. Sure. If you if you're looking at a normal person like you or me, having committed the things <laughs> yes. that you that, that he did, uh-huh. I would say the chances were you know probably seventy to eighty percent that one way or another we were going to wind up in the slammer. Yeah. For him, I don't know because the way he politicizes everything and the way people are afraid of the way he politicizes everything, uh, it creates a, a more complicating uh, more complicated situation. Let's put it this way. If I were his lawyer representing him, which I would never want to be, <laughs> um, 
I would tell him that he has a very real risk of criminal liability okay. um, and could wind up in and I think that's I think he's known that for for a long time. I think that's why he's been so desperate to remain in power. That was why he was so desperate to hold on to the presidency. He 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 has a real risk of being in jail and or broke. Um, we, we should note that it was scarcely a year ago. I mean, just like about a, 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 I guess a year and a couple of weeks that Trump faced his first impeachment. There have been four in American history, and Trump owns two of them. I have to like that. But, but at that time, Mitch McConnell prevented any actual evidence from being presented, which I think was quite a contrast to the two previous impeachments in American history. That's not going to happen this time. Uh, I guess with 55 senators sympathetic to hearing evidence, they should be able to steamroll their way into, into presenting what they feel like presenting, would you say? Here's my worry about that. My worry about that is there's been so much talk about, you know, it's going to slow the proceedings, it's going to slow everything down, it'll slow the Senate down, it'll slow Biden's agenda. There's been so much talk about that, and I think it's hyperbole. I don't think, I think you're talking about a day or two. I'm afraid that House managers may not ask for it, and I think that would be a terrible, terrible yeah. mistake. Um, and, and you say he's had two, two impeachments. The truth is, he should, he should own three of them. And if it weren't for the fact that Bill Barr was such, a, such an outstanding wingman for him when the Mueller report came out and sort of essentially spun that through a series of deceptive misrepresentations about what Mueller actually concluded a month before the report was actually released to the public so they could see that Barr was not being honest about it, he would have been impeached then too. But because of the way the spin machine was able, Barr and the spin machine was able to work that Mueller report, he, he dodged what would have been his first impeachment bullet. So he should actually be on number three. Thank you for that reminder. People think people sort of think with the whole Russiagate thing that had nothing to do with the last impeachment. It was only that focused only on his call to the president of Ukraine. Right. It's gotten the name right. The Russia hoax. Nothing but the Russia hoax. Well, it's, it was never a hoax. And if you go back and read what Mueller actually concluded, you'd see that it was it was as far from a hoax as you can get. And the exposure that Trump continues to have. Uh, criminal exposure that Trump continues to have now that he's a private citizen is that he could be, and Mueller invited this, he could be prosecuted on clear claims of obstruction of justice, the evidence for which Mueller documented at least four or five thoroughly documented in- incidents. But the, the more important aspect of that even is that if you start with Russia in 2016 and go all the way through to Ukraine and then take it all the way to the insurrection, it's the same through line. It's all about Trump getting Russia's, Russia's assistance to, to become president, you know, doing what he can once, he's, once he is in office by extorting the, the president of Ukraine uh, to, to help him win that, win re-election. And then after he loses re-election in January, doing what he can yet again to try to remain in power. It, it, it's a through line, and, it's a, and, it, and the goal is always the same. And underlying all of it are, I believe, are very, very serious and real risks of criminal uh, exposure and financial ruin that Trump, frankly, now faces. I, I do want to address this the argument that's been lying in the background uh, out of all of what's happening, that people are saying, we know what we really need in this country right now more than ever is unity. And if we just need to kind of like, you know, pull together and, and like, you know, not... Uh, not, not, not try Trump in the Senate. That's going to do more harm than good. And I think it was summarized so, so well in a cartoon I saw that showed that showed Snow White being handed an apple by the old crone that said like unity on it. And I thought that was an excellent summary. Uh, what do you, what do you say to these people? 
Uh, I say uh, Merrick Garland, after President Obama appointed him the Supreme Court, and Mitch McConnell sat on it. I say uh, Amy Comey Barrett, who well, a couple of weeks before the election uh, was was put on the Supreme Court in, in defiance of of everything that McConnell and Republicans said they would not do. Um, and, and I would also say one other thing that kind of, I, I think this is sort of, uh, sort of makes the point. When you have what, I think it was Senator Romney, I'm not sure, one of the Republican senators, I think, said uh, a cancer on the presidency. You know what you don't do if, you're, if you have cancer? You, you don't ask the body to unify with it. <laughs> you get rid of it. You can't have unity without accountability. You can't have a, a scar on the heart of democracy go go unnoticed, go uh, unheeded. Um, you know, hearkening back to Susan Collins explaining her vote to to not to convict Trump uh, on the Ukraine impeachment. Well, I think he's learned his lesson. Well, guess what? Um, and you know what? I don't even care if he's learned his lesson. I, I, you know, the you, the Republicans are all are all about unity when they're in the minority. But when they're right. in the majority, right. even when it's a slim majority, yeah. uh, they'll pass through, you know, a huge, you know, trillion-dollar tax cuts without a single Democratic vote. And, and they'll brag about it. Now, 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 the, now that a Democrat is president again, the Republicans have uh, re- recovered their interest in balanced budgets. That's exactly right. Yep, exactly <laughs> right. Isn't, isn't that something? Yeah. Isn't that, it's like it's a miracle. It's like it's a miracle. You know, and, and I don't mean to, to disparage the notion of having some ability to, to have... Uh, a, a government that makes sense and isn't just two factions. And I think it does make sense if you can to find people in the middle. Uh, what are there, four or five Republicans maybe in the entire Senate that you could say arguably are potential people in the middle and the rest of the rest of the parties become so radicalized that who are you supposed to negotiate with? That to me is a real problem. So I'm all yeah. for trying to find accommodations. I'm all for trying, I'm all for compromise when it makes sense. But the notion that, that we should somehow find a way to, to find unity with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, right. um, is is ludicrous and absurd. It's a talking point. That's all. You know, it's a it's a it's a talking point because, you know, if you go out into the and talk to to people, sort of uh, as I say, ordinary people like you and me, a lot of them will say, "Gee, I wish you know people could get along and and we could get some more things done." And wouldn't it be good if there was if everything wasn't so polarized? And you say, "Yeah, it would be great." Uh, but right now we're pretty polarized, so you got to look at who is doing that, why they're doing that, and and what they're accomplishing with their polarization. And right now there's only really one party that's gaining from intensifying the polarization in America, and that's Republicans, and that's been true for the entire entire Trump era. Well, some are optimistic. We can see some reversal of that. Jane Mayer wrote a New Yorker piece recently, noting that Mitch McConnell is now the most powerful republic in the country, and he might think that it's time to turn the GOP away from being the party of Trump. I, I thought her piece might have been a little too starry-eyed, but how would you handicap the odds of, of a battle to take the GOP back away from Trump, the odds of that succeeding? Uh, it'll depend entirely on the, on the course that his legal travails take him. So if he winds up in prison, he's done. If he winds up bankrupt, he's done. You know, but he's got a big war chest. You know, he raised uh, $250 million from people on the sort of stop the steal kind of campaign to fight the election fraud stuff. And it turns out there was fine print that allows him to eventually, essentially keep all of it. Um, so he's a flim flam man. And, and, and that has never, that really just hasn't changed. We'll take it in steps. If he avoids conviction, 
that's going to make it easier for him to hang on in the Senate. That is, if he avoids criminal uh, conviction, uh, that'll make it easier for him to hang on. If he avoids civil responsibility uh, for a lot of this stuff, um, that makes it easier for him to hang on. And and I'm not at all convinced that McConnell is the most powerful Republican right now. And I, and I think it would be interesting, but I think. In terms of the base, we won't know for sure until we see what the base is that remains after the impeachment proceedings, that is Trump's base. But those those people, uh, the, the ones that are still hanging on to Trump, are they're, they're not what Republicans themselves regard as Republicans anymore. Well, it is amazing to me that only 10 Republicans joined the vote to impeach. Only yeah. 10. I, want, I mean, Liz Cheney. When I, when I find myself in agreement with Liz Cheney, I really am scratching my head. Yeah, you gotta you got you gotta scare yourself a little bit when that happens, right? Well, here's the other here's the other startling thing. There were more people, there were more people in the Republican caucus. Sixty one people were willing to boot her off of her leadership position. Right, right, right. The Central Committee, all I mean, by a vast majority, censored her for that or tried to. Right, right. So they're more unhappy. They're more unhappy with Liz Cheney than they are with what Donald Trump did. So, so what does that tell you? Personally, when I watched the proceedings resume on, on the 6th of January and, and these Republicans go forward and on two occasions in Arizona, Pennsylvania, decide to still vote to challenge the electors in spite of the fact that these guys had just been in the crime scene and, and potential hostages, I thought, wow, it's amazing. It's just amazing to contemplate they still stuck with him and are still sticking with him. It, it's the definition of a cult, right? You're uh, willing to yeah. give up your life for yeah. the leader. and. You know, it's 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 Waco, Texas. It's Jonestown. It's 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 the cult of personality, and and that's what the Republican Party. It's not the it's not even really the Republican Party. It still has the name. It's it's managed to hang on to that brand, but it's it's the Trump Party. And um, the real question is, what are what are real Republicans going to do? A lot of them have already left the party. More of them are going to leave. Uh, they'll they'll line up as independents, I suspect, rather than the formation of a of a new party. You're dealing with a cult, and and the more interesting question is: is there a is there a personality after Trump, who's I think 76, that can sort of pick up where he leaves off? Well, don't you think that Ted Cruz and Josh Harley are looking at looking at that possibility? You bet, they're competing for it. Yeah, they're competing for that constituency, and it's 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 a race to the bottom because I, I I sincerely hope for the future of America that Trump Republicanism just disappears from the face of the earth over time. There have been some statements out of Trump for what statements out of Trump are ever worth that he was thinking about forming his own party. And I just thought, oh, good Lord, please let him do that. You could, you could, you could remove from the Republican Party Trump's hardcore base. That would be the best thing that could happen to the country. That's right. And it would split the Republican Party in half. I don't know if that was an accurate, you know, truthful leak, an intentional leak or yeah. what. But he figured out that if he did that he probably increased the chances that he would be convicted in the Senate because he'd lose some Republicans if he threatened to do that. So he yeah. has much more leverage if he can continue to say, hey, you better be nice to me because I can still be a kingmaker. Yeah. I can still get, I can get you primaried right out of the Senate or right out of the House. And unfortunately, in many areas of the country, he's correct. And we get these reports that are, I think, credible that a lot of senators and congressmen are, are actually in fear of their lives, that they, they actually are physically fearful of going against Trump publicly. That's the danger, right? You, you, you make the deal with the devil. That's literally what you're left with. You're, you're afraid to cross him. You're afraid if you cross him, you'll alienate 
the vote, and if you alienate the votes, then you're afraid you won't win. It really is the ultimate devil's bargain. Well, as we speak, the consensus seems to be that it's not likely they're going to get 12 additional GOP senators to join the five that are felt to be likely to vote for impeachment. I'm I'm speaking right now before they presented the evidence, but that's just what people are saying. We hope that some minds will be changed or whatever, but it's possible that the impeachment will fail. There's some talk of a censor vote. I don't know whether that means anything, but but this question of barring Trump from federal office, people keep saying they can do that if they vote to impeach. They have to convict him. They have to convict him. So it's not possible to put that that addendum on there without an impeachment. Correct. Oh. That's oh, right. Sorry to yeah. hear that. Otherwise, that'd be the only thing you'd worry about, right? Because sure. you don't need to re- remove him from office anymore. But you have to convict him, and then you can say, yeah, this, this, we don't ever want this guy to hold federal office again. Well, I've got one other question. It's got nothing to do with anything else we've been talking about today. I just okay. feel like I need to throw it out there. You'd be the guy to ask because of your previous work on Russiagate, et cetera. There's been some recent accusations servicing that Trump was sought as a Russian agent dating back many decades. Do you have any take on that? You know, that's an interesting question, agent versus asset versus uh, useful idiot. Uh, Craig Unger has a new book out on this subject, uh, American Compromat, yes. um, which I highly recommend. And if you go back to the early days of Trump and his connections to the Soviet Union, really, we're talking about, there's a powerful case to be made that he wasn't the only one that was being cultivated, but he fell into a demographic of the type of American who was cultivated as sort of a potential, potentially useful at some future time. So the Soviet Union and now Russia, you know, they play a very long game. So they're content to wait decades, literally, for their investments to pay off. I would not be surprised, let's put it that way, I would not be at all surprised as, as history unwinds on all of this stuff to see that there are connections that we don't even yet fully apprehend between Trump and Russia that are going to stun people, put it that way. Put it this way, who has ever come up with a satisfactory explanation for why it is that over the entire four years of his presidency, Trump insulted literally just about (laughs) everyone else that he came in contact with, right? Celebrities, Academy Award winners, songwriters, uh, congressmen, senators, his attorney generals, anybody. I mean, who, who escaped? Hardly anyone. And yet, never, not a single, not a single disparaging word in four years to one of our greatest adversaries, the country's greatest adversaries, Vladimir Putin and Russia. Not a word, not a word. We'll come back to where you were earlier in in our conversation. There are no coincidences. Well, I think Franklin Roosevelt once said that there, there weren't any in politics, that if something happened, you, you can bet it was planned that way. Yeah, yeah I just, well, Craig Unger. He didn't he write those? He wrote those books, those excellent books about the the, the Bush, the Bush relations to the House of Saud. Correct. Yep. Yeah. He wrote one also about um, uh, House of Trump, House of Putin, uh, and he's got another one that just came out within the last month. In fact, you you ought to consider having him on your. You ought to talk to him. You ought to have him on Noted. your uh, broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I think you're correct. I think we do need to seek him out. Well, as we wrap up, there's some room to be pessimistic in all of this, but I've been thinking about the fact that Biden won handily in the popular vote, and despite a lot of close races state by state, he, he did well in the Electoral College. With the elections in Georgia, the Senate joined the House in being dem- into Democratic hands. There, there's clearly a trend away from Trump and all that. And, and one thing we haven't even managed to talk about at all today, we just should mention before we close, is that the, the outrage of Trump's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Right. I just hope he doesn't get a pass on that either. Yeah, well, you know, with Trump, 
it's it's always the most recent disaster. Yes. Yeah, that that is that is so bad that it eclipsed the disasters <laughs> that preceded it. Uh, he's he's sort of masterful at that, yes. and I agree with you. It's we're going to hit five hundred thousand deaths probably yes. within the next thirty days, yes. and he should never get a pass on that. That should be the darkest. Well, pick, I don't know, darkest is to maybe, I don't know what the darkest spot, darkest stain is that he's put on the country, but that's one where you can say that he has literally killed people. Without a doubt. And, and not just a few people, hundreds of thousands. Yep, that's right. Our guest today has been the author and professor of law, adjunct professor of law, Stephen J. Harper. His summary of what led to the impeachment of Donald Trump can be, and should be, I would add, reviewed at BillMoyers.com. I guess we're going to be watching what unfolds in the Senate with you, and, and we want to thank you for joining us and hope that when this is all over with, you can update us. Happy to do it. And, and, and just on a closing note, uh, just so you don't get the wrong idea and your, your listeners don't, uh, I share your optimism. Here's the thing to think about. Imagine what would happen, now that we know what has happened on January 6th, imagine what would happen if Trump had managed to win. Absolutely. And that, that alone should give you hope and encouragement and optimism. And yet we see officials down in Georgia working awfully hard to uh, make sure that, that they didn't, uh, that, that, that it's, it's tougher for what happened last time to happen again. Right, right. Well, at least we're down to battles that we're, you know, are more traditional, right? Suppressing the vote. Yeah, no, I think that the, the national attention that's been focused on that has been very, very healthy indeed. You know, when we did speak with Greg Palace, he, he didn't have a lot of good to say about Raffin's perjure, because he said he's getting a hero's credit right now for the fact that he wouldn't do what Trump wanted, but before that, he'd suppress the votes of 200,000 black people. That's right. Trump set a very low bar for heroism. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen Harper, thank you for a great hour, and I hope we can speak again. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Doug. Take care of yourself. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around.